All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Living Truth. Glad that you're here. We're in the book of Matthew today, the king's power over darkness. We're going to read the account of the demon-possessed men at Gadara. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, we're beginning in verse 28. If you're physically able, stand with us for the reading of God's mighty word, the king's power over darkness, Matthew 8. 28 through 34 is the section before us today. When Jesus came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, Matthew 8, 29, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. He said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away, 33, and went into the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city, 34, came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. You can have a seat. Father, as we consider the text before us, we now move into the realm of the demonic, of spiritual oppression and possession. It's a foreign territory to many in the West. Perhaps some of us have experienced some of it or dabbled in the occult or maybe even had a taste of the darkness. And if we have, Lord, we know the scary power that can lie there. And yet we know greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We know that you are the mighty conqueror, our victory is in Christ. Your victory is ours, Lord. We are more than conquerors. And so we, we take great uh, peace in that for our souls. But we realize there's a spiritual dimension to life and a dark dimension that may explain more than we give credit for. And we need biblical balance here and we need to see what the text would say to us, Lord. But I pray that maybe one of the biggest things that we would see is your heart for people who are in bondage, your heart for those who are in chains, spiritually speaking. And I pray, Lord, that whatever you want to be heard today would come from your word. We'd have ears to hear. It would be taught accurately, and it would be responded to in a way that pleases our King. In Christ's name I pray, if you agree, would you say, amen. The King's power over darkness. This particular uh, topic or story is told in all three synoptic gospels. When I say synoptic, I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels because they're very close in content. Not exact, but you'll find many of the stories in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew's account of this story is very much abridged or truncated. The question is why? Mark, for example, explores much more about the personality of one man, as does Luke. Much more detail, much more description in the story. Matthew kind of gets right to the point, and I think one of Matthew's biggest themes is the, you, he wants you to see the power of Christ and answer the question, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? So that'll be before us in this particular account. One thing I want to mention from the outset is that there is a variation in the two stories. Matthew says there were two men. Luke, Mark and Luke say there was one or at least focus more on the one. They don't talk about two. Scholars typically will say that the solution to the difference is something like this. If we were to see an accident at an intersection, for example, and hopefully it wouldn't be anything serious, and we had four or five eyewitness accounts of the same accident. We would probably get different layers of what occurred by interviewing each eyewitness. It may not be exactly the same emphasis. One might emphasize one car or one person above another. 
but we'd be able to kind of sketch in the canvas by the various eyewitness accounts. Here's another example. I stole this from another teacher, but let's say that I described to you a Hawaiian vacation that I went on, and Hawaii sounds like a pretty good place to tell a story about. I haven't been there before, but let's just say I said to you, we stayed in this hotel, we had a rental car, and it looked like this, and I gave you some details about where we ate and what I did, etc. and maybe I was just focusing on myself. And then later, one of the family members who happened to be on the vacation said, oh, I was there too. Didn't he mention that I was there? And the response might be conveniently, no, he left you out. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that other than just to say this is an illustration. So when stories are told, sometimes there can be variations, but it's not a contradiction, it is complementary. It seems that Mark and Luke are focusing more on the one man, the more dominant man, the one who seems to be the focal point of the story, and even the man that eventually says he wants to go with Jesus, where Matthew brings up that there were two there. We all know uh, basically that wherever there's two, there's one, so that it's not a contradiction, but I will say it's worth wrestling with in terms of just when people might have questions about these particular things. Now, leading up to this account is a story of a storm. We looked at last Sunday. It was a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was so radical, so scary, that it scared to death experienced fishermen, at least some of them were, who had fished that lake their whole lives. And so we mentioned last week that some of the language, like, uh, for example, Matthew uses the word seismos, where we get seismology, and he paints the picture that the sea was literally quaking. And one writer said, you can almost imagine the enemy shaking the ocean to uh, you know, try to thwart the Son of God coming to the other side of the sea. And that's what Jesus said was going to happen. Get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side of the lake. Uh, another word that's used by another gospel writer is the idea of hurricane force winds. So strong that the winds were, the waves were crashing over the boat. And the whole time, Jesus was asleep. And we filled in some gaps like this. The disciples had to be thinking, how could one sleep at a time like this? And eventually, they woke him up, and with a word, he calmed the sea. There's an interesting word I want you to see here as we go back just to set the context a little bit. Look at verse 24. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. Jesus himself was asleep, 25. They came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up, keyword, and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and they said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now we know that Jesus Christ is the God man, but we read some Old Testament accounts like Psalm 107, for example, where only the Lord can control the sea. He can, he's the one who can say to the ocean, this far and you can no, go no farther. He's the one that can speak to his creation and the creation will obey. And this certainly makes a case that Jesus is God. But as the storm winds blew and the waves crashed on the boat, the disciples did something very human. I don't think we would do much better at all. They were afraid. They were fearful. They wondered if they were gonna die. And they woke him up. And it had to be kind of a humbling experience, as we mentioned last week, for fishermen to wake up a carpenter to get help on the ocean. And their words in verse 25, I want you to see, they're very important for our story this morning. They said, save us, Lord. We are perishing. I believe it's Mark's version says, don't you care that we are perishing and we explored a psalm, I think it was Psalm 44, that asked the question from the psalmist, Lord, why do you sleep? Well, why does it seem as if you sleep? Now, commentators point out that the word rebuke there, that Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, is a bit unusual. He said, hush to them, shh, and they were calm, but he rebuked them. That word 
is used in other gospel uh, narratives for the rebuke of a demonic spirit. Come out of the man and the spirit, the unclean spirit would come out. It's the word to rebuke a spirit. And this is why many scholars believe that the storm on the Sea of Galilee is devilish in origin. There's something dark about it. There's something sinister about it. And some have conjectured that it may well be that Satan knew that Jesus was going to come and deliver two of his most usable, you know, uh, people, if you will, who he had total control over, who scared the whole region. May well be that. But as I was studying this week, there's some things that hit me and I want to throw out to you. These are things that I believe that the Lord just spoke to my heart and I want to put them before you. I believe on the other side of the sea were men that were saying something like this, Lord, save me. Lord, don't you care that I'm perishing? Lord, are you asleep? Lord, I feel like I'm being destroyed. The area of demonic possession for some of you who are new to Christianity might be a bit strange, but some of you have been around long enough to know that there have been all these movies that have come out to try to depict demonic possession. One of them, way back in the day, I think it was in the 70s, was the first Exorcist movie written by Raymond Blatty. Blatty took uh, the combined... Uh, journals of priests and perhaps even pastors. And he took all these uh, magnificent manifestations, if you will, magnificent in a dark way, and combined them in one film. In the original story, it wasn't a girl that was possessed. It was a boy. It wasn't a girl named Reagan. But the, the situation was mom was dabbling in some occultic kind of stuff with seances and Ouija boards and that kind of thing. And the kid ended up being possessed as a result. And Dr. Martin, who was my hero, who went home to be with the Lord in the 80s, wrote the book, The Kingdom of the Cults. And when The Exorcist had come out, he said he went to the movie theater and he was going to watch the movie and kind of just do some research on it. He said a big strapping fellow sat right in front of him, big muscular guy, sat down. He said, okay, I'm here. Now scare the hell out of me. And that's kind of how people, and by the way, hell is a biblical term, just so you know, depending on the context, of course, but. But that's kind of, that movie was one of the first in the genre. And one of the scenes in that movie that among many scary scenes, at least for the time, was on Reagan's belly, the words, help me, were etched in her stomach. It was, it was a, like a bizarre scene. And here's what I want you to see. And I believe that we're on some solid ground here. I believe that there were two men on the other side of the lake that were saying what the apostles were saying in a different kind of storm. Lord, help me. Don't you see that I'm perishing? Save me. And I believe that anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, verse 10. He came, we often say, on a rescue mission. Why would he leave the huge crowds in Capernaum and go to the pagan area? At least it was commingled with pagans and Jews. Why would he leave so much success, if you will, to cross over to that area, that dark area? Because I believe, this is my personal take, that two men, perhaps especially one man on the other side of the sea, was crying out to God. Now, that area on the other side of the sea was known as the Decapolis. I mentioned this last Sunday. It was known as the, the Ten Cities, very Hellenistic, humanistic. That is, it was dominated by Greek thought and culture, kind of independent cities. And the sacred animal on the other side of the sea or the lake was the pig. Pigs are going to be prominent in this particular story. 2,000 pigs, in fact, we're going to see in the account. And there are scholars who believe that the two demon-possessed men might have been Jewish. And even the owners of the swine may have been compromised Jews. So it wouldn't matter whether you were Jew or Gentile, but imagine if the two demon-possessed men go and live on the other side of the lake, open up their life to spiritual darkness, and become possessed. Possessed. 
And imagine, they say in demon possession cases, depending on the severity, people have frequent lucid moments where they are themselves. They can act very much normal and natural. And as layers of possession progress, they lose more and more control of themselves. Imagine in the more lucid moments on the other side of the sea among the tombs, these men, or at least one of them, was crying out, Oh God, I don't know what has happened to me. Oh God, if you can hear my prayer, save me. I think that we can make that connection between the storm and the language that the disciples use and those on the other side of the sea. If you turn to the book of Acts for a moment, I want to show you a parallel account that hit me this week as I was studying Acts chapter 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to show you something that happened in, the, in a city called Philippi, Acts chapter 16. We're actually studying this in our men's Bible study on Thursday mornings. It happens right here in the office, 9 a.m., we usually have about 15 to 20 guys in the office studying the Word of God. We're moving through the book of Acts. On Friday mornings, if you're a guy and you want to get more plugged into a discipleship Bible study, we meet at 7.30. We're going through the book of Revelation right here in the office. And on Tuesday mornings, they meet at um, Corky's right off Cahalco, and they're studying the book of Romans. And they start at 7 a.m. So this is all on the church app, but if you want to get to know some guys and be part of a Bible study, that would be really good. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, we have the story of three transformations. One is Lydia, a businesswoman of the time. One is a servant girl who happens to be demon-possessed. And the third story of transformation is the Philippian jailer, that famous story. Pick up the text with me in Acts 16. We pick it up at verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, Luke writing the book of Acts and he's with the team at this point, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus, notice now for the second time, did not permit them to go in these certain regions. I don't know how that happened, how they got the word, but they were forbidden or not permitted, and they were passing by Mysia, and they came down to Troas. Verse 9, chapter 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, this was a vision that Paul got. And note the words, come over here, please, and help us. I, I, I see in here a parallel to our story before us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, putting out to sea, notice once again we have the sea. From Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. From there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We we're staying in this city for some days. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. Literally, this is a python spirit. This girl was possessed, and she had some uh, rare gifts, you could say. She had the ability to fortune tell. And when, you, when a person goes to a fortune teller, and let me just say to you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have no business ever going to anybody like this. A medium, a seance, uh, seeking out someone to read your palm, all of that stuff is forbidden for the believer. If you get any answers from that medium, it's not coming from God. The, this is the dark side of the equation. Well, the, the girl had some ability. She was able to tell people about the past, present, and future, probably amazed people with her gifts. And she was bringing her master's, notice, much profit by fortune telling. 17. Following after Paul and us, says Luke, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. Mark that in your Bible. It is biblical to be annoyed. And not just annoyed, greatly annoyed. So next time you're on the 91 and you get annoyed, just say, hey, it's a Bible verse. Paul was greatly annoyed. Why can't I be? 
Now, of course, Paul, it was a little bit more spiritual in Paul's case, right? He was annoyed at the girl's presence. He was annoyed at her continuing to say this. And so he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment and she was delivered. Now, this has always puzzled people. And scholars or commentators have different takes on what's going on here. Why would the girl possessed by a demonic spirit follow these missionaries around and say, these men are showing you the way of salvation. These men are showing you the way of salvation over and over, on and on, to the point where it annoyed Paul. Some people say, well, it's because God doesn't need the devil's endorsement. That's one major take on the passage to explain it. One view is the language could mean she says a way of salvation, not the way. And that's debatable. I think you could take it either way. Maybe she's preaching all roads lead to heaven. It doesn't really matter what you believe and trying to kind of thwart the gospel message. But that's not the way the scholars render it here in the New American Standard. And Pastor John taught this passage a couple years back and he ran something by me that I thought was insightful. He said, do you think it's possible that the girl was following the missionary team around because she deeply longed for deliverance from Jesus Christ. Do you think that the vision of the man from Macedonia, come over here and help us, the Holy Spirit forbidding them to go to certain regions, then they get on a boat, they come to Philippi, was because there was a girl there who in her more lucid moments was saying something like, oh Lord, can you set me free? Can you deliver me from this bondage? I think there's a parallel there. And if we take it at face value, maybe in her more lucid moments, she was wondering, can I be set free? I believe that anybody anywhere on the planet who calls genuinely on the name of the Lord and says, Lord, would you deliver me from my darkness, whether it's the darkness of sin, whether it's spiritual oppression, whether it's even possession, and they cry out, Lord, save me. I believe that the Lord... We'll send a missionary, give you a dream, deliver you, do whatever he wants to do. Amen? This is our God. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to take these two stories together and see a potential connection. That Jesus has a divine appointment on the other side of the sea to rescue two men who were scary, who were in such a dark place in life, it's almost hard to imagine where they had uh, fallen to. And so into the boat they go and they cross the sea. In the Jewish mind, if you turn back to Matthew chapter eight, the sea represented darkness and chaos. I mentioned Isaiah 27 to you last week. Isaiah 27 depicts uh, the sea and even a kind of a mystical sea monster as chaotic and parallels him with the dragon in the book of Revelation. Satanic powers, dark chaotic, unpredictable. Years ago, I was a surfer, believe it or not, when I was a teenager, and my friends wanted to go out surfing at night in Newport Beach, and this is when the Jaws movies were all uh, coming out, Jaws 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 17, and I remember, oh yeah, let's go out and surf at night, that sounds great, and I remember sitting on my board at night in Newport Beach. My mother's like, you did? When did you do that? <laughs> we'll have this discussion later, Mom, but anyway, I felt Some years ago, I, I spoke at a conference on truth. It was an apologetics conference. And I think I was slated as the first speaker to speak. And as uh, we were getting ready for the beginning of the conference, they lost power in the building. And I went up and I was trying to graciously stall. And I told my three best jokes, nothing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and a woman in the crowd said, Pastor, pray. 
It's almost like she rebuked me. Don't, she was like saying, don't you see there's something spiritual going on here? Pray. You may doubt this, but I will tell you that there's times when we're in something very important, spiritually speaking, and somehow the enemy messes with it. You can believe it or not. I don't really care if you believe it or not. But I'm just telling you, it does happen. So, Father, we pray for your spiritual covering as we move into these realms. We know we have an enemy that's real, but we know that we're more than conquerors. So would you bless our time, keep our hearts open to what you have to say. Protect each of us and bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. The sea was uh, something chaotic and dark in the Jewish mind, as I mentioned. And uh, this is why many scholars believe that in Revelation 21, there will be no more sea. Because it will mean that God has destroyed all the dark, chaotic powers of life. And that would include sin, death, the sea, all those things that the devil uh, had a hand in, if you will. Job 26, verse 12 says, he quieted the sea with his power. And by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. Rahab is Rahab the harlot in the Bible, but there's another Rahab, and it makes a connection once again to this dark, mystical sea monster, sometimes found in Canaanite myths. I want to share this verse because I believe it's for someone. Just write this down if you're taking notes. Isaiah 51, 8 through 13 says these words. For the moth will eat them like a garment, the grub will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old. Uh, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, the scary sea monster, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you to be afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy? But where is the fury of the oppressor? God's saying in Isaiah 51, 8 through 13, don't you know who I am? I'm the one that commands the seas. I'm the one that made the world, the sea, the dry land, the stars, and all that is in them. Why do you fear man? Why do you fear the fury of the enemy? Why do you walk around all day long in fear? This is why I believe that Jesus rebuked the apostles. Oh, men of little faith, why are you so afraid? Some of us think, well, what did he expect of them? It was, it was an incredible storm, maybe something they had never seen before because they had forgotten who was on the boat. They were asking questions about his identity, but they hadn't put it all together. And the demons on the other side of the sea are gonna answer their question. What kind of man is this? Son of God and son of man, amen? That's what's before us. Jesus, I believe, hears the cry. And so he came, Matthew 8, 28, part A. Matthew's version, again, very abridged. When he had come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. Uh, some have rendered this, some of the gospels, Gerasenes. Some of the versions have a, a different word here. But scholars conclude that this was a wider area that led all the way up to the seashore, a very pagan area. I mentioned the, the fertility cult was practiced here. The pig was a sacred animal, very humanistic, maybe kind of like a Las Vegas of the ancient day kind of thing. And it was, this region was across the lake. So here's how you could picture it. Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about six miles across the lake, you end up on the northeast side of the sea, in the pagan area, commingled Jew and Gentile. Probably, if you're Jewish on that other side, you're in some form of compromise. And get this, it's quite possible that not only the demon-possessed men are Jewish, but the herd, herdsmen of the pigs 
are living in compromise and they're Jewish. And what would be the main reason to have unclean animals, 2,000 of them, that you are not supposed to touch or eat or have anything to do with? Why? One word, bacon. <laughs> and doesn't that explain a lot? <laughs> one of my, you might say one of my favorite words, <laughs> bacon. But for the Jew, it was an unclean animal. It was an unclean area. Everything about this place was unclean. From the location to the confrontation, two men, part B of verse 28, who were demon-possessed, met him. Much like the description of the servant girl in Acts 16. As they were coming out of the tombs, they were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by that road. Now, you got to get out of your mind a modern graveyard with uh, tombs and, and a gate that might let you in. That's not how it looked in the ancient world. Uh, tombs were hewn out of rock, typically on hillsides. So these two men who lived among the tombs would live on a hillside where uh, bodies were laid in tombs hewn directly out of the rock. That's the way it worked. Then they'd be kind of up on the hill. And they lived among the tombs. And this was another unclean compromise. Jews were not supposed to interact with dead bodies, touch dead bodies. So you can imagine the place that they've gotten to. Imagine this. One of the gospel writers says one of the men, at least one of them, has no clothes on. People have tried to bind him with chains. And he's, so, he's got so much supernatural strength, he's able to break the chains. No one could have any dealings with them anymore. They were so violent. I think there was a sign like in the Wizard of Oz, Witch's Castle, shortly ahead, I'd turn back if I were you. And can you imagine, you get out of the boat, you've watched Jesus calm the sea, stretch your faith, you get out of the boat, and you look up on the hillside, and here come two really scary, freaky individuals. And they come running down the hill towards you, you're like, oh, great. Evangelism in the graveyard. Exactly what I signed up for, right? And uh, I think it was Spurgeon who called this area Satan's castle. These men just, they so dominated. This, some of you can remember back to your teenage years when you went to an abandoned house that your friends called haunted. Uh, Mom, I'm gonna admit <laughs> something else from the fault. <laughs> a lot of explaining to do. Anyway, <laughs> there was this place when we were in high school called The Geek. And it was up in the Santa Ana Hills and me and my friends would set stuff up so that people thought it was haunted. <laughs> and the Lord saved me. <laughs> When they had come out of the boat, immediately, Mark says, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. If you're the apostles, you have to be thinking, oh no, here we go again. He's touching lepers. He's, he's crossing all these boundaries. Is this why we're here? And the answer is yes. I spun gas in my car a couple days ago and there was uh, obviously a homeless man rummaging through the trash cans. As you know, that, that happens at times. And you know, I, I feel compassion and empathy, but I try to use wisdom on what to do and when to engage and when not to. And in this case, I didn't. And as the guy was rummaging through the, one of the trash cans, he went, Aah! And I think he touched a rotten banana. And that's the sound I make when I touch a rotten banana. <laughs> anyway, sorry. He was a little freaky. And... Sometimes I'll offer to buy somebody a meal if they're hungry. Obviously, you got to use great wisdom and discretion. I said this at first service, and a man came up. He's a brother in the Lord. He used to be on the streets homeless, and he said to me, Pastor Michael, he goes, I wasn't possessed, but I was certainly oppressed by dark powers. And he said, you know what meant the most to me when I was on the street? When people would come up and pray for me. He said, it was nice if people gave me something to eat and maybe even handed me a little bit of money. He said, but 
He said, when people prayed for me, this is his words, it broke me down. Something to remember. And so these men, uh, the other gospel writers say they're on the hills among the tombs croaking at night, almost like when you hear coyotes howling at night. But they were humans. They were making the noises, screeching and howling. Gospel accounts taken together said they cut themselves with rocks to try to force the demons out of them. It was an ugly, terrible scene. And that's where Jesus goes. Leaves the crowds crosses the raging sea, faces off at the enemy. Why? Because he loves. Because this is his mission, to leave the glories of heaven and come down and save the one. These men had broken their chains, but they were in spiritual chains, no doubt. Satan had a foothold. Obviously, these were deep levels of possessions, and we're gonna learn that there were perhaps thousands of demons, at least in the one man, because Jesus asked, what is your name? And the man's response, legion, for we are many. Think about it. A Roman legion had 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen and other technical personnel. That's over 6,100 individuals. If we take it literally, legion means thousands of spirits. If we take it just as a word to describe more than one, you can imagine, remember there's 2,000 pigs up on the hill. So the numbers have to be very significant. And Mark tells us that the man, one of the men that is Mark's focus, ran up to Jesus and bowed down before him and asked the question, what do we have to do with you? Why would a demon-possessed man run up to Jesus and engage with him? Some people, some scholars say, well, demons were deeply fascinated or drawn to him even though they knew that he would cast them out. Does that make total sense? No. But could it be, I throw this out for your consideration, that in at least some of the lucid moments that this individual had, he ran up to Jesus because Jesus was the answer to his cry. Because Jesus was God's provision to save him. Because God had heard his cry. God in human flesh. And he ran up as if to say, please deliver me now. Help me. And deliverance had showed up on the seashore. We don't always understand what God is doing, but I will tell you this. God is always in the business of rescue. Always. And behold, 29, they cried out, saying, what do we have to do with you, son of God? They know who he is. The demons believe that God is one. James 2, I think it's verse 19, and they shudder. They have one up on a lot of people. They have correct theology, plus they're fearful of God, while others walk in pride and have no fear of the Lord. Can you hear it? Don't you care that we're perishing? Yes, I care. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so here's the man who becomes the focus. There's two of them, but I mentioned the focus on the one. What do they say? Have you come to torment us before the time? What does that mean? What's the time? I think the time is the ultimate second coming of Christ, the time of judgment. Did the demons know that there would be two comings? One for Jesus to die on the cross, live the perfect life, die and resurrect, and then come a second time as the judge? Do they think right now they have a sense of time? It's not time yet. But do they think, well, maybe we didn't have it right on our calendar. Maybe this is the time that we get thrown into judgment. Maybe, maybe we had it off. Please don't torment me. You know who they know he is? They know he's the son of God and they know he's the judge. If you haven't heard this before, you need to hear it. All judgment has been given to Jesus. When people tell you, well, I believe in God, but I'm not sh quite sure about Jesus or what to make of Jesus, let me tell you, Jesus is God the son and all judgment has been given him. He's the judge and there's a judicial sense to their response. Have you come to judge us? 
They know he's the judge. This is further proof of his divine person. And so there was at a distance 30, from a her, uh, at a distance from them, a herd of many swine, that is pigs, feeding. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And all God's people said, what? Why would they ask that? Well, it seems like demonic spirits want something to ha- inhabit. They don't want to be floating around, if you will, or be just in spirit form. So they like to inhabit. I heard a, a guy teaching on this who said that he had missionary friends who said that they ran into animals that they believed to be demon-possessed on the mission field. And some of you are like, that explains my dog fully now. I shouldn't have named him Cujo. <laughs> That's, never mind, that's a movie from way back when. If you're going to cast us out, put us into the pigs. Maybe they knew that it would cause a reaction in the pigs and therefore Jesus would be booted out of the region. I don't know. But he said to them, go or be gone. All, all it takes is a word. Be still, hush the storm. Be gone, the demons scurry. And they came out and went into the swine and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Get lost, get out of here. And off they go into the swine. My niece has pigs and for entertainment because they live in Tennessee. (laughs) Sorry if you're watching, it's just a joke. If you pick up a pig, you know what it'll do? It'll start to squeal And it's a weird noise, and I'm not going to try to duplicate it here, but it is a scary, weird noise. Can you imagine 2,000 pigs all being, you know, filled up somehow with demonic spirits and the squealing that would go on? And this is one way we know that the spirits had come out of the men because of the reaction of the swine. Maybe you've heard someone tell a story and they said something like this. Maybe you have a friend who's very charismatic and they said, yeah, we're... We were there and we cast out seven spirits or demons out of this person. And you might say, how do you know? Because the dog was acting funny over there. No, no. But, but seriously, how, how do you know? We, we have a, a case that I personally dealt with. I've shared with you before. And here's how I knew. The person cried out to God and prayed the sinner's prayer. And all of a sudden, a calm came over them, and they were free. And it was clearly evident by their behavior. But I will tell you that there are stories of missionaries who say when they have been involved in some stuff like this, and believe me, nobody goes looking for the stuff like this once you've dealt with it, is it could take hours for a person to be delivered. The apostles later will say, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this one? And he said, this kind only comes out by prayer. And another uh, manuscript version says prayer and fasting. It, It can be a battle. But we're dealing with Jesus here, right? Be gone, and off they go into the pigs. 2,000 of them off the steep hill. Luke says they went right into the abyss, right into the dark sea of judgment, if you will. Some scholars believe to be judged eternally by God. Others believe they, once the swine died, they were off doing whatever they do. But Luke says they perished in the abyss. Perhaps they are awaiting final judgment, I don't know. The response, last part. The herdsmen ran away, now those who were the owners of the pigs, and went to the city and reported everything, including the incident of the demoniacs. So they told the story, And behold, the whole city, almost like we saw at Peter's door, it seemed like the whole city was there for healing. The whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, if you closed your Bible right now, what would you guess would be the answer? And when they saw him, they said, please come over to my house because I have a crazy uncle and I think he might be in bad shape. Please come over here and and share the truth with my household. Please come over here and tell me more about who you are so I can learn about who the Son of God is, Messiah. No, they asked him to leave. They said, 
Get out of here. We don't want you here. What in the world? But I was thinking this week and thinking, you know, Israel did that. They said, we'll prefer the gods of the pagan nations around us. Get out of here. And they forgot about their maker. And brothers and sisters, America has said it to Jesus. Now, not all of America. But in a country where the Bible was how we taught kids to read, now a kid comes to school with the Bible and he gets called into the principal's office and told he can't have it there. He can't have a Christian t-shirt on. Can't have his Bible on his desk. But if you say, I think I might be the other gender, they'll rush you off to the principal's office for a different reason, to accommodate your request. Now, I'm not trying to broad brush or be mean here, but this is where we have ended up as a nation. We've essentially said to Jesus, at least some of us, get out of here. We don't want you here. We don't want you delivering people around here. And get this, someone said to me at the end of first service, Pastor Michael, is it possible that the swine all perish in the Sea of Galilee as a judgment from God, almost like the book of Exodus when he judged the gods of Egypt. Remember, each of the judgments was against a pagan deity. Is it possible that it was Jewish pig owners who had compromised for the God of Mammon for money and Jesus judged them by causing their full herd to go into the sea and then judged their fake God on top of it. Wow. The Lord's always working on many levels. And into the uh, Sea of Galilee they go, and I want you to turn to Mark 5 and we're done. Mark gives us a touching scene at the end of this account. I'd like you to see as we close. Mark, I told you, gives more detail, and here's what he says, Mark 5.15, just the next book to your right. Mark 5.15, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat or plead him to depart, plead with him to depart out of their region. Mark 5, 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him, begging him that he might accompany him. I want to be your disciple. Lord, I never want to leave your side. You can imagine his motivation. Wherever you go, I'm going. And Jesus did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Could you imagine this man going around the Decapolis? I was the guy who used to be naked, chained, screeching and howling, extremely violent, up in the tombs of Gadara. And now I am free. Can you imagine a better missionary? And this week... I want to challenge you with something that I challenge myself. Would you go out this week and would you tell at least one person the great things that the Lord has done for you? Could you do that? Sometimes we hesitate because we say, oh, I don't know if I could, should I use the four spiritual laws? Should I do this or that? Should I use the law to get to the gospel? How about you just tell somebody this week the great things that the Lord has done for you? Tell them your transformation story. You each have one. Tell them. So I'm sitting at my uh, desk this week and sometimes the Lord will give me a song. And I wrote a song, but I can't play a song because I don't play a guitar. I'm a drummer and not a great one. <laughs> it's been a long time since I played. But I'll send songs to Shane and I'll say, hey, I got this great song idea based upon this deck. And I was just sending it to Shane to say, hey, I think this could be a cool song in the future. Well, what did Shane do? He put together a song for right now. 
and he cleaned it up. But this is what I wrote in my notes. This is what the Lord has done for me. Did you hear my desperate plea? Did you hear my cry? Save me. Oh Lord, do you sleep? Do you see my deepest need? Would you cross the raging sea to show me your mercy? You'd be born in obscurity. Leave heaven's glory to rescue me because you heard my desperate plea. This is what the Lord has done for me. Would you face the darkest fiend, cleanse my life and make me clean? Face the shame and suffering to save me from perishing? Your cross says the answer is yes. You said it is finished and I am blessed. The empty tomb bears witness. This is what the Lord has done for me. You did, you did leave heaven's glory. You were born in obscurity. You did cross the raging sea. And now in Christ, I am free. Father, thank you for this amazing text. Thank you for hearing our cry. When some of us can go back and think about desperate cries we made, maybe at a lone, low moment, maybe in, a, uh, in the middle of a lonely night, maybe finally seeing our sin for what it is and what it had done to us. And we're here because you came to us and saved us because you are gracious, loving, full of compassion. I pray for the saints that are here today, Lord, that they would find encouragement in these words, that they would know the lengths that you went to to save them. They'd never forget what the Lord has done for them. They would tell their story. There are some who have been in seasons of doubt. The enemies come like a flood and they've doubted maybe even their own walk or their own salvation or maybe even doubted you, Lord. I pray that you'd heal those broken places and remind them of who you are and what you've done for them. And Father, for that person who doesn't know you yet, maybe this has been the cry of their heart. Oh God, save me. I, I don't know if I'm even savable, but would you rescue me? Do you hear my cry? Do you hear my prayer right now, if that's you? Jesus saves. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Turn, repent of your sin, walk away from the darkness and walk to the light, Christ. Tell him you believe who he is. Tell him that you believe he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead. Ask him to save you right now. He is faithful to save. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name.